Good morning again. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're actually going to be looking at just one verse today. Luke 2 and verse 14. Let's go ahead and begin today uh, in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your continued grace to us. We thank you for the, um, the work of salvation that you have uh, worked in this world for your glory and for our good. We thank you that you are a faithful God, a holy, just, and righteous God. We pray that you might instruct us from Scripture today, encourage us. I pray that our hearts would desire to worship you more because of the passage in front of us in Christ's name. One of the most uh, memorable statements in all of Scripture surrounding the birth of Jesus can be found in Luke 14, and you know the passage. We read, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You may be more familiar, some of you may be more familiar with the wording from uh, the King James, which says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And you can probably hear the distinctive tune from Handel's Messiah, of course, on this verse. Glory to God, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The first time, however, this hymn was sung, it was not at Carnegie Hall, it was not in Paris or London. The first ears to hear the words, uh, they were not wearing uh, suits or tuxedos, they were not holding programs printed on fine paper with beautiful calligraphy, they did not pay an admission fee to get in. Likewise, the first voices to utter these words were not mere human voices. The first voices to utter these words came from the highest of all choirs, from the very gates of heaven itself. And the first ever backdrop to this song was a quiet, dark, and lonely field. And the first ever audience was a group of lowly, humble shepherds who certainly were not dressed for the occasion. And it was at this scene that is unfolding for us in Luke chapter 2 that God the Father decided he was going to announce the birth of the Savior to the world. Not the kind of introduction that you or I would think would be uh, becoming of a king, and yet in the divine wisdom of God, who knows far beyond us, this was God's choice. And what I would like to do today is spend really the rest of the time today just looking at this one verse, and I want to first begin here with just a little bit of background in order to kind of get the context. We read for our scripture reading, Luke 2. Uh, verses 1 through 7. But just to kind of summarize here, you'll remember that Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all of the world should be registered. 
And Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem for the registration, and they tried to find a place to stay at the local inn. And of course, you know that there was no room for them in the inn. And Mary was about to give birth, and so they found this stable, uh, and she was able to give birth there and lay Jesus Christ in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. Some distance away while this was going on, Yet within the same region, there were shepherds out at night watching their flocks, quietly, minding their own business. And suddenly, and without any warning at all, a bright light shines on them, the glory of God itself shining all around them. And an angel appeared in the midst of all of this and frightened them. And the angel reported glad tidings, and he announced the birth of of Jesus Christ, and they reported, these angels reported to the shepherds where this Jesus could be found. And suddenly, at that moment, at this announcement, there was a great multitude of angels that appeared, and they began to say in unison, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, not at all the scene that we would imagine would be becoming of a king. Not the group of people that you would want to make this initial announcement to. Quiet, humble, nobodies who are just out in a field minding their own business, and suddenly a great multitude of angels begin singing this choir or this hymn. It is this declaration that we are interested in today. And so I want to look at this declaration that these angels uh, announced in really two sections. The first one is glory to God. This is the first part of the verse that says glory to God in the highest. And this verse deals with two basic ideas. The first is that heaven is singing praise glory, and adoration to God. And the second one is the proclamation of peace on earth. And we'll get to that in a moment. It probably goes without saying, but uh, sometimes we do need to state the obvious. And that is that if angels, the highest of God's beings, are interested in something, I should probably be interested in that too. There's something to see here. This is not just a passing fad or something along those lines. Of course, you know this is how advertising works, right? A shoe company, a clothing company, a technology company, whatever. They will hire a famous person, an actor, uh, a social media influencer, quote-unquote. They'll hire someone who has a lot of notoriety and a lot of fame in the world, And they will hire this person to advertise their particular brand. And the subtle thinking that goes on in our minds is, well, if he's interested in that product, if he thinks it's good, then it must be good. In fact, sometimes, in fact, a lot of times in the advertising world, this is actually not a good thing because it short circuits my desire to research a particular product, and it's just like, well, if he endorses it, that's all I need, and so I'm going to go, and I'm going to get this, okay? Um, In the advertising world, there's, I think, oftentimes a lot of deception, not always, but a lot of deception going on. Um, 
and sometimes that can get you into a little bit of trouble, but there is no false advertising going on in Luke chapter 2. The angels are genuinely interested in what is going on. Something is unfolding in front of their eyes, and 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 describes this work of God's salvation as something which, you know the verse, angels long to look desire to see this work that is unfolding that God is doing. They're marveling at this. God, the holy, perfect God, could somehow find a way to reconcile sinful people to himself. And they look at this and they marvel. They long to look and to learn and to um, proclaim this work that the Lord has done. And so quite uh, simply, the point here is that if it is worth angels marveling at, it's certainly worth us marveling at too, particularly since we are the ones who are objects of God's salvation. Something has captured the attention of these angels, and not just one or two, but an entire multitude of them. And in response to the incarnation, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself coming into uh, human flesh, they cry out simply, Glory to God in the highest. Very simple declaration. Now, of course, this is not the first time that the angels have praised the Lord in like manner. We know from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, Isaiah is given a glimpse of the throne room of God, and we simply see these angels crying out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Likewise, this will not be the last time that the angels sing the glory of God because we have in Revelation 5, verses 11 through 12, the very end of our Bible, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. One of the themes that you will see is that whenever uh, we look at Scripture and see people or angels praising God, it is always very clear at what direction the praise is going. This is the theme that I've picked up on a number of times, even recently, and that is that the praise is always being funneled from me to God. I am praising God. God is not praising me. I am praising God. I am worshiping Him. I am honoring Him. He is the one who deserves all of the praise and adoration and worship. The word glory in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, our verse, the word glory is uh, in Greek, of course, the language the New Testament was written in, uh, is the word doxa. You hear any English words here in the word doxa? We get our English word doxology from the word doxa. Uh, And there are probably three doxologies that are uh, most familiar to us. A doxology, by the way, is simply a hymn of praise to God. It's glorifying God. And so we can talk about a doxology. Sometimes we will talk about the doxology. 
And there are really three of them that we're probably most familiar with. The first one is what's referred to as the greater doxology. And this is simply Gloria in excelsis Deo. Okay, you guys know this because of the Christmas song. This is a Latin phrase that means exactly what our verse says, glory to God in the highest. This is called the greater doxology. Uh, The second one is uh, the doxology referred to as the minor doxology, uh, the Gloria Patri. And this doxology is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning and now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. This is the minor doxology. And then uh, probably the doxology that I'm guessing most of us would be familiar with, the most familiar one, was written in 1674. And that one, of course, and you can hear the tune as you say this, praise, and I won't do that for you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Praise, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. These three doxologies are doxologies that have worked their their way kind of into our tradition, our our, our Christian traditions, uh, which is good and right. And perhaps we should use these a little bit more than we do, I think, sometimes. Um, uh, But a doxology in general is any kind of hymn and praise to God. And in our present passage in Luke 2, the angels are singing a doxology. Glory to God, doxa, to God in the highest. And while it is true, actually there's two two ways that you could look at this word glory um, to God. The first one is that you could see in this passage Uh, glory as an attribute of God, which it is. God is a God of glory. That's part of his character. Uh, You can also see here in this verse, glory more of uh, as a verb. That is to say, we are going to glorify God. We are going to attribute glory to him, which I think is what the angels are doing here Although both aspects are true, I think that the angels are glorifying God, proclaiming glory to God. And so uh, the distinction between these two forms of glory uh, is the distinction between what is referred to as uh, intrinsic glory and ascribed glory. God has intrinsic glory. We also, as his creatures, are to ascribe glory to God. And so let me just show you the difference between these. In Matthew 25, 31, we see intrinsic glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he just has it. It's just his. He possesses glory. No one can rob this from him. No one can take this away from him. It is part of who he is. He is a God of glory. Uh, the glory that God possesses is his, whether or not it is recognized by men. God has glory, you can choose to ignore it, but that does not in any way diminish his glory. He has full glory. At the same time, men and angels can ascribe it to God, ascribe glory to him. 
which is really recognizing it in him and praising him for it. And so Psalm 29 verse 1 is an example of this. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. This is not God saying, I'm a little bit lacking in glory today. I'm a little bit lacking in strength today. So can you ascribe me some so I can fill up what I'm lacking? This is not what this is indicating. God is not lacking in anything. He does not need us for anything. He chooses to use us and chooses to fellowship with us. He does not require uh, that from us. Uh, So this is not a, a statement indicating a shortcoming that God has in some way. It simply is us recognizing what he already has and attributing this to him. And so you have intrinsic glory and you have ascribed glory. And this glory that the angels are attributing to God is to be performed and it is to be given and it is to be recognized at the highest degree. They don't just say glory to God. They say glory to God in the highest. Everything that is in me is to give glory to God fully. I'm not to reserve anything back for myself. I'm not to hold back on praise or worship. I'm to just attribute glory to God to the absolute highest degree. God does not deserve secondhand worship. I heard a sermon illustration a number of years ago, and I tried to find it, and I couldn't. Maybe one of you can find it but it's a story of uh, either a missionary or a Christian who went to some pagan country where they were still engaging in child sacrifice. And this woman had twins, and one of the twins was a very healthy child, and the other twin was very sickly and perhaps even likely to die soon. And this man watched this woman go down to the river where the crocodiles were at, um, and he saw her take the healthy child and throw the child to the gators. Um, and he was amazed for obviously multiple reasons, one that a parent could even fathom doing such a thing to their child, but also amazed that it was the healthy child, and he inquired about this, and she said, essentially, I don't know what kind of a God you serve, but the God that I serve requires the very best from me. This is coming from a pagan. This is coming from one who is, unless she repents and turns to Christ, going to face God's wrath for that sin and other sins. Um, But we do see something uh, of this in the Old Testament sacrificial system where you could not, the sacrificial system was not a means for you to discard sickly animals, okay? You did not have the option to say, Well, out of my flock, those three are the sickly ones. They're probably going to die within a week anyway, and so I'm going to offer those to the Lord, and that way I'm good to go. No, you had to pick the very best from your flock. You had to go and and find the one that had no blemish, the one that was not sickly in any kind of uh, way. And I think there is a parallel to this. We see this Old Testament sacrificial system. You come into the New Testament, you see the birth of Christ, And you see that we are to glorify God in the highest. He deserves our most sincere praise. He deserves our most sincere allegiance. He deserves our most sincere labor. He deserves high and lofty praise. This is not 
Church is not a recreational activity that we engage in on the weekends. It is something that demands allegiance from every corner of your life. The way that you spend your money to the thoughts that you allow to come into your mind, to the places that you travel, the people that everything that you do in the course of your week, from rising up to laying down, everything you do is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and you are to submit every last inch of it to Christ. It belongs to him. We are to praise him to the highest degree. We are to obey him. We are to enjoy him. And so this is the first part of this uh, doxology. It is glory to God in the highest, or to the highest degree. The second thing in this verse we see is this idea of peace on earth. And we can go back to the verse again. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This declaration of the birth of Jesus Christ is a declaration of peace. Now, one question that comes to our minds immediately is this. If the birth of Christ is something that brings peace, then why 2,000 years later is there so much strife in the world today? It's a fair question. How do we explain, for example, the 20th century, which went on record as the bloodiest century in human history? We grapple with that reality. One writer notes, I think correctly, on this, that it is individualized peace that comes into the hearts and lives of those to whom he brings salvation. It is peace with God and peace from God. Uh, What Adams is saying here is that the kind of peace that Jesus brings is a peace that is individualized in the hearts of those who are God's children, who have been regenerated, who have been born again, who are Christians. I would say, though, and add on to what Adams is saying, is that it is more than this also. It is this, but it's more than this. And I would suggest to us that this internal peace is a peace that is growing. After all, at some point, enter the eternal state where there will be peace from strife for all of eternity. That's produced by what Christ has done as well. Uh, Even creation itself, inanimate creation, the trees and the rivers and the sky, the dirt and the rocks, they are underneath a curse right now, all of these things. And this will be set free, Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Comes at the fall of man. Adam and Eve sin, and God sends a curse on all of creation. This world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And it's not always going to be this way because of Romans 8 who subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children 
of God. And so there is an aspect of this peace that Jesus brings. The angels are singing peace on earth. And this peace is something that will swallow up the whole world one day. And we will be, those who are in Christ Jesus, participants of that world. That's still yet to come. At any rate, that peace can be yours today immediately without delay. An internal peace that comes, it's, it's an internal peace. There's a subjective element to it. I feel at peace with God, but there's an objective element to it. I am no longer at war with God. I'm objectively at peace with God. And that is, I think, the most important aspect of this is that people can have peace with God. Romans 5.1, there is therefore, or, or, um, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, Philippians 4.7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I would suggest that this peace uh, uh, with God is the predominant meaning in Luke 2.14. Again, I do say that Christ brings peace to all domains, some yet to be seen at future glorification. It is, in that sense, and as one writer says, a peace that encompasses a whole social order, the entire world one day. This peace is God-initiated, it is God-driven, and we might say simply, to, 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 to simplify all of this, that it is the gospel that brings peace. Jesus Christ, through the gospel, brings peace. We read, of course, in Isaiah 9, 6, this reality. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, what's the last one? Prince of Peace. This Christ brings peace, and the angels are declaring it at his birth. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We can have peace with God. Now, I want to remind us of something here, and remind us of the fact that when we hear these words, you can have peace with God, that should sound strange to our ears. Now, there are some people who perhaps maybe have been Christians for many, many years, and they have heard this so many times that it just becomes a little bit like secondhand and I'm not really thinking. But I want to just kind of jolt you for a moment that you should not think that that is something that is normal. Like this is, this is, this is abnormal. Like this is, how could this possibly have happened? And there may also be some people who are not Christians, who are unbelievers, who kind of look at this and say, well, we're not really that bad off. Why, we're, why aren't we already at peace with God? Like what's... What's going on here? I want to remind us of the fact that when you and I are born into this world, by nature of the fact that we have inherited the sinful nature of Adam and Eve, we are born at hostility with God. We're not born neutral. It's not a blank slate. We're not born morally good. We are born morally corrupt and sinful, and uh, a term that we use oftentimes to describe this, is totally depraved. We're born in sin. And the evidence of this 
is that that sinfulness expresses itself in sinful ways, which means that we are both sinners by nature and by choice. In fact, we cannot help but sin. Jesus describes this when he talks about uh, roots and fruits. You know, a apple tree produces apples. You know this, right? Peach tree produces peaches. Grapevine produces grapes. Sinners produce sin. Okay, that's the whole idea behind this. We are born at enmity with God. And there are some rather harsh statements in Scripture regarding this. In Psalm 5, 4 through 6, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, I want to acknowledge and point out from Psalm chapter 5, or Psalm 5, uh, the passage that we are reading here, is that it is very popular today to say that God uh, loves the sinner but hates the sin. Psalm 5 really kind of upends that for us because he actually says here, you hate all evildoers, the people who are doing the sin. And after all, God does not punish inanimate sin in hell. He punishes people in hell for all of eternity. He hates sin, yes, and he hates sinful people. You hate all evildoers. And there is actual hostility between man and God. Now, Ephesians 2 is giving us the, both aspects, the answer here. He begins with, for he himself is our peace, which we've seen in Luke 2, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, there is very real hostility between man and God. This is one of the reasons why Christmas is such a celebration. I mean, you don't... You celebrate big things in big ways and little things in little ways, okay? Um, when your child learns to ride a two-wheel bicycle, right, without the training wheels, okay? You celebrate that, okay? But most of us probably don't invite the entire community and have a three-course meal and then cake and ice cream and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, it's a, I understand as a parent, it's like exciting, Okay? But you celebrate that differently than you celebrate something that is, why is Christmas such a big to-do? I realize we've lost a lot of the meaning in our current culture, but it still is a big to-do. There's a lot of celebration going on because of the seriousness of what's going on here. Jesus Christ broke down the hostility between God and man. That is something that is worth putting all of our energy into celebrating. And we can't forget that. We can't forget that this is why the celebration. There is very real hostility. It wasn't your personality or your wisdom that brought peace between you and God. It was Jesus Christ and him alone. That is why the celebration, because there was absolutely nothing you could do to reconcile that broken relationship at all. We were lost, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. Glorify God in the highest, to the highest degree. That is the pronouncement in Luke 2. It is that Jesus brings this 
peace. Now, who does he bring this peace to? The verse tells us, among those with whom he is pleased. Now, some of you, again, to go back to the uh, probably the language of Luke 2.14 that has stuck with our um, kind of Christian conscience throughout the years, is the goodwill toward men phrase from the King James. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And although this phrase is the one that really did work itself into the Christian vernacular, it's probably better to understand it the way that the ESV translates it. Um, The pronouncement of peace is a peace that is not just given indiscriminately to all people. God is a God of benevolence. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Okay? He's kind. He's benevolent to all of his creatures in that way. Um, But the peace that comes through redemption, through Christ Jesus, is not a peace that is given indiscriminately to all. Hell is a very real place, and there are people who really will go there for all of eternity. And so this peace is not given indiscriminately. Uh, The peace specifically is directed out to those with whom God is pleased. Um, One commentator notes that this phrase is very close to a technical term uh, in Judaism, for God's elect. That is to say, peace among those with whom he is pleased essentially means peace among those whom he's chosen. Peace among those that God has uh, chosen to redeem. And on this point, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says on this verse, real peace on earth exists only among those who are the subjects of God's goodwill. Again, what the ESV is communicating here. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. In like manner, the textual scholar, Bruce Metzger, um, very well known, uh, says this. The meaning seems to be not that divine peace can be bestowed only where human goodwill is already present, because it's not already present everywhere, but that at the birth of the Savior, God's peace rests on those whom he has chosen in accord with his good pleasure. So we can say that if you are someone here today who has been redeemed, who is a Christian, who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, then that peace goes to you. Peace to you. Because of the work that Christ has done in salvation. In other words, the angels are declaring that God be praised because he has chosen to bestow peace on undeserving sinners and to bring them into fellowship with himself. That's why the angels are singing this proclamation. So where do we kind of go from here? Well, let me try to state what is happening in this verse. The highest choir in the universe is directing the highest degree of praise to God because he has stooped down to love and to bring peace to sinful people, which should cause us to marvel 
it is something worth marveling at. He didn't have to do this. And as one hymn says that we sing oftentimes here at Christmas time, we should respond to this, this reality by proclaiming it. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. And that, of course, is one of the central takeaways from this passage, from this verse. The angels proclaimed it. The angels were interested in it. The angels marveled at it. The angels took this and said, out of all the things that I have seen, I am going to take this thing and bring the highest degree of praise to God because of this. You better go and do likewise. Another takeaway from this verse is that it should cause us to heighten our praise. We should sing here at church with overflowing and grateful hearts. And we should celebrate Christmas Eve tonight and Christmas Day tomorrow with great joy. Yeah, give gifts. Don't turn it into a materialism thing, but give gifts and celebrate and eat food and all of that kind of stuff, yes. Let that be part of what you do. We are to attribute all praise, all blessing, all glory, and all adoration to God and God alone. We are to funnel praise away from self and toward God. And for those of you who may be here today and you do not know Christ as Savior, then my admonition for you is to let this short little hymn which was sung 2,000 years ago, introduce you to Jesus Christ. May you repent of sin and turn to him, and he will save you. Glory to God in the highest. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you that you deserve all glory We thank you for this incredible work of salvation that you have wrought uh, in time and in space, this incredible salvation that you have worked uh, in the human race. We attribute all praise and glory to you for this. We pray that our celebration today and tomorrow would be rich, that it would be full and infused with meaning and that we would celebrate out of hearts that are overflowing with gratitude for what you have accomplished in our hearts. If there be anyone who does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Thank you for your great kindness to us. We pray this in Christ's name.